you're old. I love the first line of when they come to Samuel, you're old. It's pretty harsh. This morning, uh, we're going to begin uh, looking at the book of 1 Samuel, and, and the question uh, that we begin with is, uh, what kind of king do you want? What kind of kingdom do you want to be a part of? And, and I know that as Americans, we have, uh, we've we rejected that sort of language of kings and, and kingdoms, and we've selected other terms. But whether we're calling them uh, a king or a governor or a president, and whether we call it a kingdom or um, a nation or a democracy, uh, we're, we're still getting at the same idea. What kind of leader uh, do, you, do you want to follow and that you'll submit to and that would be reflected by the kind of society that you live in? What kind of king do you want? Um, I, I was spent some time this week sort of reflecting on that. And, uh, and here's, here's a, a short list that I made up. And maybe, uh, maybe you can identify with some of the things that, uh, that I have on my list. I said, uh, I would like a king that I can respect. I'd like a king that I can respect. And, and uh, for a king to, um, to be able to unify people instead of divide them. Um, I would like a king uh, that uh, is, is a leader of leaders. You know, somebody that on the world stage would be recognized by other leaders and, and respected and, uh, and, and see that, that, that they have a good name and are of good repute and are respectable. You know, I, I would like to, to see a king who, who's a warrior, who uh, knows what it means to be willing to lay down their life before they would send others into situations where they would have to lay down their lives. I, I would like to see a king who, uh, who has walked in uh, normal people's shoes, who knows what it's like uh, to, to go without, uh, to be turned down or to be turned away, um, a king that would know uh, what it means to, uh, to work hard for something and then um, fail at times, a, a king who knows what it means to, um, to, to, uh, to struggle, uh, someone who's really walked in, in our shoes. Um, I would also like a, a king that would respect me and uh, a king that would, uh, wouldn't raise barriers to, to, to me and what I, I, I can and what God is making me into, you know? Um, a, a king that wouldn't deny uh, the, me the, the, the growth that I would like to, to see. I like a king um, who won't limit my voice, who won't censor me, um, who won't uh, limit what, what it is that I can uh, say. Uh, I would like a king who wouldn't burden me financially with taxes. Uh, any of you like that? Um, uh, but at the same time, I would like a king who would use the taxes that I do pay and actually uh, be responsible with it. Um, I would like a king who would take the fruit of, of my labor and he wouldn't give it to somebody else who can labor but won't. But I, I think I'd also, I, I want a king who uh, not only uh, I can respect and, and who respects me, but I want a king who respects life. I want a king who um, uh, values human life, all of human life, uh, from the unborn to the elderly. All of human life, regardless of what color it is. All of human life, regardless of, of what mental capacity, regardless of what physical ability, regardless of what socioeconomic status that it has, that, it, that this king would value and cherish all of, of human life. That's, that's the kind of king that I would want. Maybe you can identify with some of that. Now, as I was sort of thinking about my list, I recognized that um, I live in, you know, in, in this particular society, and I've, I've gone through enough elections, and I'm old enough to see, you know, uh, what people have done and how people have succeeded in leadership and how they failed and, and from that gleaned what I would like to see in a king. But imagine that I had come from a tribal society. Um, I, I imagine I've coming from a society that has never experienced real centralized sort of leadership and, and you're transitioning and you're, you're desiring to, to move from a tribal society into a centralized sort of leadership society. How would you know what you wanted? How would you know? 
Um, anyway, um, I'm going to stop moving my head so much. That's the problem. So, uh, so I can formulate a list like that based on the type of society that I live from. But you see, the Israelites, the passage that we just read up there, you see the Israelites and they're asking for a king. Um, but they've never had one and they don't really know what to ask for and, and they're really getting it wrong. And we're going to dive into that this morning. But we're, we're beginning this, this book on, on 1 Samuel, this study, and it's going to last about 14 weeks. And this is a really old book. This is about 3,000 years old. And, uh, and a question to begin with is, 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 does this actually have anything applicable for us? This book that's so old and so ancient and, and, and deals with terminology that we don't even use anymore, does this actually have anything to say to us in the time and the place in which we live in? And the profound answer is, is yes, it does. Um, all right, put down the Britney Spears mic. Some of you are old enough to know what that means. All right. Find where you're at. Here we go. Uh, so, First uh, Samuel is, is highly applicable, and uh, and here's here's some of the things that we're going to encounter in in this book. Um, we're going to see uh, men abusing women. Uh, we're going to see wives betrayed by husbands. Uh, we're going to see uh, children rebelling against parents. Uh, we're going to see uh, corrupt religious leaders. Uh, we're going to see uh, murder conspiracy, dirty politicians, uh, power struggles. And, and even the horrors of, of war. We're going to encounter these things. And so but we recognize that, you know, some things change, but some things about fallen human nature don't. And so 3,000 years of history are, are not going to change how, uh, how important and relevant uh, 1 Samuel is uh, to us. And so here's what we're going to do this morning. Um, I'm not going to get into the text. We'll start in the, into the text next week. Today is about laying a foundation for understanding it. Um, and so we're going to ask a bunch of questions that you would ask of any um, a book of the Bible as you, as you study it. And, uh, and so we're going to lay a foundation for it. My hope is that by the time we get done this morning, uh, that, that you walk out of here, uh, one, knowing why we're going to study it and, and wanting to study it and have that, your appetite whetted for it, okay? Uh, and so let's begin by asking some questions of, of this book of First Samuel. Where does uh, the title come from? That's the first question. Where does the title come from? Um, lots of books of the Bible um, are named after a person that, that wrote it. Um, Samuel is not the author of the book, okay? Um, Samuel actually dies within the story um, before we even get to the end, so he's not the author. Uh, the reason that it's called Samuel is because um, he's sort of the main transitional guy. He, he's, he's in this very, very pivotal role within um, two areas of, 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 of Israelite history. He's got um, one foot in the, in the period of the judges. We'll talk a little bit about that. He's the last judge, uh, but he's got his other foot um, in, in the kingdom era as he's the one who will actually inaugurate and anoint the first king of Israel. And so he has a very, very important role, and that's why uh, the book is called Samuel. Um, how long is the book? Whenever you uh, go and pick up a new book, do you turn to the back page and see how many pages it is before you buy it? I, I do. And if it's like 800 pages long, then I look for an abridged version. And, uh, and 1 Samuel is actually longer than you think it is, because they're, it, it never intended to be 1 Samuel. Uh, in the original uh, Hebrew, um, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, they were part of the same scroll. They were part of the same uh, story. They were one unified uh, story. And so um, we are only going to be looking at 1 Samuel over the course of these next four, 14 weeks, and then, uh, God willing, uh, we'll look at 2 Samuel uh, maybe uh, next summer. But uh, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, they're one book, and they have a sequel called First and Second Kings, and those two were also originally just one book, 
okay? And this is all about going from a period of judges into the period of kings and then um, what that, that looks like, especially what human leadership uh, really looks like. Um, another reasonable question, who wrote the book? Who wrote the book? It matters who the author is, right? Um, in this case, we don't know. Um, it, it is likely that, it, that there's more than one author, probably two or three different authors. And what they did was they wrote down history as it happened. And then um, along came an editor who took those stories and compiled them in such a way um, and ordered them in such a way that they would point to um, something that, that he really wanted to, uh, to underline and pronounce and preach. Okay, so... Um, when was it written? It was probably begun about 1100 B.C., probably finished about 900 B.C. That's 3,000 years, right? Roughly 3,000 years old. But I hope that you will see that how, how relevant and how applicable this book is this morning. So um, we're, going to, uh, we're going to spend some time talking about that, and then at the very end, we're going to pull out some parallels uh, that, that will connect things for us. Uh, next question. What kind of book is this? I think the, the best way to, to describe 1 Samuel is it's, it's poetic, historic narrative. Um, so poetic. When you look, and, and we could throw the, um, the outline of 1 Samuel up on the screen. When you look at the outline of 1 Samuel, um, you notice that it has a certain sort of symmetry to it. Okay? Uh, what you're looking at is something called a chiasm. And we find it often in poetry, where the first line in poetry and the last line of the poem... Uh, are, are, are related, related to each other. They, they either they, they, they reflect each other or they tell the same story or they repeat each other, but the first and the last relate to, the sec- to each other. The second and the second to last also relate to each other. And the third and the third to the last relate to each other, okay? Until you get to the center of the poem, the center of the chiasm, and there you see uh, the author's intent, okay? So first and second Samuel is actually laid out like a big poem, only instead of lines of a stanza, they're stories. They're individual stories. So the first story relates to the last story, and so on and so forth. When you get to the middle of the chiasm of, of First and Second Samuel, what you see is what the author wants you to, to walk away with. He wants you to understand. It's, it's, a, it's a battle that happens and a king that is killed. Saul dies, and he is lamented over by David, his successor. And in this story, the author or the, the editor of First and Second Samuel is saying, this is the king that you wanted. This is the king that you wanted, and he disobeyed God. You should get a better king. You should want a better king. Now, First uh, and Second Samuel, it is a message of, uh, of, uh, that should awaken us. It should be a warning to us, but it's also a message of hope because it points us to a new and true and better king. So um, it's also uh, poetic because uh, the beginning, the middle, and the end of it um, contain songs and poems. Right? Uh, the second part of that historical narrative. You need to understand that First uh, and Second Samuel are historical. Uh, that this really happened. This is really factual. It's not fictional. This is historical. Uh, these events did play, take place. But it's narrative. It's, it's told like a story. Uh, the, the editor includes details in it that is meant to draw you in and help you to understand it and bring this thing to life. And, and when you begin to study First and Second Samuel, it really is. Um, it's beautiful. It's powerful. And it does suck you in a little bit. And so uh, poetic historical narrative. Um, who is it written for? Simple answer is it was written for God's people. It was written for those who lived uh, right after the events took place, but it was also, it's also written to us. It's written for us. Uh, 
Um, uh, and that brings us to the, to the next question, why? Why was it written? Um, the commentators, uh, Heath Thomas and J.D. Greer, write uh, about this book, uh, a helpful answer to the question about why was it written. They say this, we must learn to read the Bible front to back and back to front. Both practices are vitally important. Reading the Bible from front to back means beginning at the beginning, Genesis, and going to the end, Revelation. As we do, we will discover a God who created everything and who has redeemed everything in his son, Jesus. As we read front to back, we discover God, the one on whom everything depends and the one who deserves all allegiance and worship. But they go on to say this, but this way of reading is still not complete. We must learn to read the Bible back to front as well. This means that once we see Jesus in the New Testament, we then turn back to the stories of the Old Testament in the light of Jesus and find that he was always there. 1 Samuel points us to Jesus. 1 Samuel points us to Jesus, and, and he is there and he is present in, in every page, though his name is never mentioned. This is about Jesus, and that's why it was written. Uh, lastly, what is the context of the story? Uh, what do we need to know about uh, the life and the time and the people in this story that will help us see the connection between us and them and will help to teach us and to help us grow and to help us be more faithful? And so uh, we're going to look at, at, at a few different things here this morning. We're going to spend the most of the time talking about context, all right? Um, the first thing that we need to know about the context of 1 Samuel is we need to be reminded of, of the people of Israel and where they find themselves in this particular point in time. Okay, so their story begins where our story begins. Back in Genesis, in the beginning, God, God created everything and everything that God created was good. And at the center of this good creation, God creates Adam and Eve, our first parents, and they were good and they had a good relationship in every sense of that word. And they walked with God and they talked with God and they did life with God and they were with him. It was good. It was really, really good. The, the nature of their relationship is that he, he provided them with purpose, and he, he gave them things to do, and, and he gave them c control and, and some uh, degree of, of, of power, and, and he, he gave them a great amount of freedom, and, and there was only one thing that they were prohibited from doing. There was a tree called the, knowledge of the, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they were, they were told not to eat the fruit of that particular tree. And see, by not eating that fruit, they demonstrated a type of faith, they demonstrated that they were willing to come under the reign and rule of God and submit to his authority. By abstaining from that tree, they demonstrated a type of faith. Now, into the garden comes the deceiver, the enemy, the Satan, the, the enemy of, of God. And he comes in the form of a serpent, and he speaks to our first parents, and he begins to tell them lies about God. And he tells them that God is not good. And you know that God is not good because he's withholding something good from you. And if you'll just reach out and you'll take it for yourself, then you could come out from under this not good God's reign and rule, and you can become God's yourselves. And they believed the lie. And when they did, sin and death entered our reality. And their eyes were open to their nakedness and their shame. And the reality is, is that a good, holy, perfect God cannot exist in the presence of sin and death. And so Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden. And that's when the story really begins to get good. Because God begins to act in a redemptive ways towards his people. First, he calls a man named Abraham. 
And he promises Abraham that there's a place of land that's going to belong to his descendants. And that his descendants are going to be numerous. And that through these descendants, there's going to be one that comes that blesses the whole world. And so Abraham has a son. And he has a son who has two and the second of these sons, his name is Jacob. He wrestles with an angel of God, and his name is changed to Israel. And Israel has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And this family, it numbers about 72 people, goes into Egypt for a period of time. And after 400 years, 72 people become several million people. But they find themselves enslaved under a pharaoh, under an evil king. But this was all part of the plan, the plan that was even told to Moses. And so God raises up a deliverer, and he sends Moses into them. And this, this Moses works mighty, mighty things with the hand of God. And he delivers these people out, and he leads them towards this promised land. And then there's this, this change of leadership that we see. A guy named Joshua takes over, and he leads these 12 tribes into the promised land, and they begin to defeat the, and conquer the people that are living within it. And before they are finished, Joshua divides the people up into their tribes, and he divides up the territory, and they disperse from one another. And that's the end of the centralized leadership that Israel knew. It now becomes more tribal. The only thing that really connects these tribes together is that one of these, these tribes, the Levites, were divided amongst, up amongst them and, and lived among the various tribes. And they were meant to call the people and point them continuously to God. The problem starts. And the problem is that when God told them to go into the land and completely take it, there were some people groups that he told them to completely and utterly destroy every man, woman, and child, and they didn't do it. And, and whether that was because they thought God was being too harsh, um, whether it was because of the, the fact they just didn't want to, whatever it was, they had another idea that instead of destroying these cultures, they could change the cultures that they could become the influencers of those cultures, that they could convert them, that they could colonize them, that they could change these people. And they utterly failed. And what happened instead is that the people changed them. The culture influenced them. The culture converted them. The culture colonized them so that they walked away from their relationship with God and they embraced the life of the culture surrounding them. And this angered God. And so he would allow these enemies to come in and, and to abuse the people and to, to steal their harvests and, and to, to subdue them and, and enslave them. And they would call out to God and God would raise up a judge who would come and rescue them and bring them out. And for a period of time, they would worship God again, but it never lasted. It never lasted, and once again, they would return and allow the culture they lived in to overwhelm them and influence them. So this is the, the end of the period of the judges that we look at. We, um, we didn't look at the book of Judges for, for a reason. First of all, I want to say uh, all of Scripture is worth studying and diving into. All of it is God's word, and it's, it's good. But Judges is a book that we won't preach from in this setting because there's kids here. And because I don't want to put barf bags in the seat backs in front of you. The book of Judges is so defiled by what, or the book itself is not defiled, but the stories in it are of utter defilement and grotesque nature. 
The book ends with the words, and in those days there was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It was horrible. And so it's at this period of time that these Israelites who have been over-influenced by the culture in which they live are now beginning to say, we want a king like the cultures around us have. So that's the first part of it. The second part of the culture we need to understand or the context that we need to understand is uh, the other people group, major people group living in the area at the time. The Canaanites were, were the people that, that uh, the Israelites were supposed to displace. And the Canaanites were a highly spiritualized group of people. They had a whole pantheon of gods. And we'll mention two of them. One is Dagon. Uh, Dagon is mentioned here in 1 Samuel. Um, he's also mentioned in, uh, in the book of Judges with a, with a guy named Samson. Uh, the second god is Baal, and he's the one who's referenced more in the Old Testament. But the Canaanites worshipped these gods. They believed that they were their protectors, uh, their providers, uh, that they would benefit them, and they would, they would bless them. And in order to get blessing from these gods, uh, they did all sorts of, of evil and disgusting things. In the worship of, of Dagon and Baal, they sacrificed their children, they mutilated their own bodies, and they engaged in cult prostitution. They did all of these horrible, horrible things in order to manipulate these gods to get them to do what they wanted them to do. The Canaanites also uh, practiced uh, necromancy. That's um, this belief that you can go to um, um, a medium and, uh, and you can consult them and they will um, conjure up the spirit of someone dead for you. Uh, they believed that their ancestors would continue to communicate to them through, through a medium. Now, we as a modern people, we would look at, at all of this and we might say, well, it's just ignorance at work, right? Like, they were worshiping, you know, nothing. They were worshiping stone. They were worshiping a piece of wood. They were worshiping something man-made. Or, or these mediums, they were probably just con artists, right? Like, they knew how to read a room or they knew how to read a person and could, could tell them what they wanted to hear. But what the Bible actually says is that behind all of, of these things, behind Dagon, behind Baal, behind these mediums, there were actually spiritual forces at work. Spiritual forces aligned with the enemy. Real spiritual forces who were interacting and to some degree had a measure of power. And human beings manipulated or tried to manipulate these things in, in order to get money, power, and sex. So the Israelites, they're living in this culture, and they see this happening all around them. And here they have, on the one hand, they have the God of, of the universe, the God Yahweh, right? And this God has given them a ton of rules and laws of things to follow, and they're supposed to be so strict about staying clean and, and, and not doing this thing and not doing that thing. And this God is incredibly hard to manipulate. And yet, on the other hand, there's this whole pantheon of gods that if they'll do these simple, though maybe disgusting things, they can produce from them some measure of benefit. They can produce from them uh, wealth and power and sex. They can get what they want if they turn this way and embrace the gods of the culture around them, and that's exactly what they do. And these people have kings. The third thing uh, to, to understand about this, this cultural context is technology. Um, this is really metallurgy. Like This is the beginning of the Iron Age. You know, iron was, was, a, was a good thing. Those who knew how to, to smelt iron could produce uh, better agricultural tools. They could produce uh, better cooking stuff. They could just produce better tools in general. But they could also produce better weapons of war. The Philistines, the, the other major group that we see in 1 Samuel, 
uh, was, it was a group of people that migrated to that Palestinian area from the Aegean Sea. And these were people that understood how to smelt iron. And because of that, they were a dominating military force in the region. They had the weapons, they had the tech. Meanwhile, the Israelites are still using bronze. The other thing that the Philistines brought is that um, they uh, transitioned out of a city-state sort of government into a larger kingdom sort of government where they, they collaborated with other confederacies and, and, and appointed kings over them. And so these kings, they were generally uh, powerful. They were very really good in, in, in battle and had proven themselves, um, but also they were a form of religious leadership. So the Israelites are, are looking around, and um, they see all, all of that's happening around them, the culture that's around them, and it's a culture that they were supposed to dominate and destroy. They were supposed to take care of it. Instead, this culture is influencing them. It's changing them. It's converting them. And they want what their neighbors have. We want a king. We want a king like them. And so Samuel, he gives them this warning. If you have a king, here's what they're going to do. They're going to take from you. They're going to control you. Say goodbye to your kids. Say goodbye to your crops. We don't care. We want a king like our neighbors got. This is the heart of the people that, that, that Samuel is, is dealing with in this, in this chapter. So um, First Samuel um, really is... Uh, uh, it's, it's about uh, people wanting a king, but the cost of that decision. Um, but ultimately, it's also about the grace of God for these people and not ultimately destroying them, but ultimately pointing them to the king that they will need. Uh, and so uh, this morning, like I said, we're not getting into the text, but we're, we're laying a foundation for why we're studying it. And now I, I want to pull out some, um, some parallels. Looking at the culture and looking at what is happening in 1 Samuel, do you see anything in there that corresponds to where we are at today, especially as a church? I want to pull out five things, five parallels from, from the context of 1 Samuel. First, like those ancient Israelites and our first parents, uh, we have trouble keeping God on the throne of our lives. We have trouble keeping God on the throne of our lives. Uh, recently, we've been doing a series called Under the Influence, and it's, it's addressing how do we live spirit-filled lives. And, and, and most of that, is, it really is, it's about saying no to our flesh, and it's about saying yes to the Spirit of God. But the reality is, is you come in here for an hour and 15 minutes on a Sunday, but you spend the rest of your life out there in this culture. And, and you really think that an hour and 15 minutes can somehow erase all all that you've been exposed to over the course of this last week in terms of the culture. It is really easy to let God off the throne of our lives and turn to ourselves or anything else to live and rule and reign over us. We have the same heart that those ancient Israelites have, only we have the power of the Holy Spirit. Second, like those Israelites, the church in the West and the church in the United States in particular is deeply divided. Those, those tribes of Israel, they, if you read the book of Judges, you find out that they warred against each other. They fought against one another. They killed one another. They were deeply divided with one another. That's the people of God. And the truth is, is the church in the United States is also deeply divided. And we have our own priests and our own pastors and our own leadership structures but we don't communicate with one another, and oftentimes we are speaking ill of one another 
and tearing one another down. And the, and the truth is, in, in, the, in the cultural climate in which we are living in, we need to start being more unified and coming together as a church. And the only one that can do that is King Jesus by the power of his spirit. But we have that in common with them. Third, like the ancient Israelites, we are enamored with the culture around us. We are enamored with the culture around us. The, the money and the power and the sex that, that's all around us. You know, uh, last week was our away game. And the purpose of the away game is uh, that instead of gathering in a, in a church building, instead um, we, we gather with our house churches and we go out into the communities in which we live and we be the church where, where, we're, where we're called. We understand that we are a missionary people and we have a missionary God. And the Son of God came and he took on flesh, incarnate. We are meant to be incarnate. He came and he moved into the neighborhood. We are meant to go into the neighborhood. We are meant to be light where he has called us to be. We are meant to go and make disciples of him. We're meant to be on mission for Jesus. But, but the reality is, is we live in a culture that is seeking to colonize us. And, and oftentimes, Christians, in an attempt to be missional, in an attempt to influence the culture around them, will instead be influenced by it. You want to convert it, instead it converts you. You want to colonize it, instead it colonizes you. Because we get a little bit too close, and we get a little bit too enamored by the dazzling things that our culture can provide. Now, there's two things, I, I think, that this, in which this happens, and these are the final, final two parallels. The fourth parallel, technology. Now, I get it. Uh, we drive electric cars. They had chariots. But it's not what the technology is. It's what the technology does that we see the parallel. The Iron Age presented people with, with new things that would advance and make life better. You know what? The Internet makes life better or has the ability to. The ability to carry the Internet around in your pocket. To communicate with anybody you want at any time. To have access to any kind of information you want. That there are a lot of positive things that this technology can provide for you. But you see, like those Philistines using technology to gain dominance, there are whole corporations that are using to this to monetize. And they've got all these algorithms. And these algorithms are designed to get you to click on this and to click on that and to buy this and to buy that and to shape your mind and to shape your way that you think so that in the end, you think you're purchasing a product, but you've become the product that's being purchased. A good technology weaponized against people to control and dominate them. You see, people get upset that God told the Israelites to utterly destroy these people groups. You know what happened because they didn't? The Israelites' children were destroyed. We are putting these things in the hands of our kids. I'm not saying you need to go out and, and conquer the way that the Israelites were told to conquer, but maybe you need to kill your phone. Maybe you need to turn your smartphone into a dumb phone. Maybe you need to kill that Netflix account. That thing that is taking over and control of your life. Maybe you need to kill it. Last one. The fifth parallel and the second way 
that the culture is influencing us, expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. Uh, this is actually the new morality. This, is, this has the new high ground in our culture. Expressive individualism. Um, especially sexually expressive individualism. You remember what Judges says? And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was a time when a Christian could stand up and say that sex should only happen between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. And the culture agreed. But over time, the culture began to disagree a little bit here and a little bit more there until it becomes, well, let's agree to disagree. And it's okay to you to do you. There was a time when, well, that's what you think, and that's different, but okay. And the reality is, is that's no longer the case. The way it stands now, that, that sexually expressive individualism has the moral high ground in our country. And to make the statement that sex should be between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage is actually immoral. You're the deviant one. You're immoral if you profess that. And you should be ashamed of yourself. Some of you, you're like agreeing with that. And the reason why you're agreeing with that is because you're beginning to get colonized. That you are being influenced by the morality of the world and you're abandoning what God has said about sex and marriage. And you're taking a good thing that's been created and you're allowing it to be co-opted and changed and influenced by the culture around you. That's why we see whole denominations that are giving sway and giving up what they believe the Bible says in order to adapt this view of morality. Expressive individualism, the new morality. Now, for the Israelites, they looked around and, and they saw the benefits of the culture surrounding them. And they saw what they had and they saw the money and the power and the sex and they wanted that and so they rejected God in order to have it. And their way of having it was asking for a human king. We want a king. You know, if uh, expressive individualism is the new morality, do, do you know what the new religion is? It's politics. Politics is the new religion. And the new gods of this religion are the candidates that you want to see in office. And the new Satans, the new devils, are the candidates' opponents. And we believe that our guy, our senator, our congressman, our, our whoever, that person is going to be our savior. And their opponent is the devil. It's the new religion. There is a new holy war being waged in our country and the truth is, is Christians are being co-opted to join one side or the other. Will we, like these Israelites, look at the culture around us and want to be like it and join one of these sides? Worship a Baal or worship a Dagon who is running for office. Will we do that or will we say no? We know who our king is. We know who our God is. And he's the one we will serve. And he's the one we will worship. He's the one we will obey. His kingship is the one that's worth 
submitting our lives to. Because the warning of 1 Samuel is to look at Saul, the first king of Israel, who's lying there dead and being shown a picture of what it means to follow a human king who disobeyed God. Yet at the same time, it's calling us to a better king and to recognize that need and to look higher and to look better and to recognize Jesus in the story because the king came and the king died and the king was resurrected and now that king's enthroned. We have a new and better king. You know that list that I read at the beginning? Um, I didn't intend to, uh, to, to, to do this. When I was making that list, I was actually thinking about what I would want in a, in a president. But when I reexamined that list in light of who Jesus is, he's the one who unifies. King Jesus is the one that all other kings will bow down to. King Jesus is the warrior who knows the cost of laying down his life. King Jesus knows what it means to, to walk in my shoes, to be hungry and tired and cold and afflicted and tempted without sinning. That's him, not me. But he's the one who gives me the spirit to enable me to become what he made me to be. He's the one who opens up my mouth and gives me boldness to speak. He's the one who won't burden me with taxes, but instead will lavish me with heavenly things. He's the one that will dispense justice and mercy with perfection. And when it comes to respecting life, no one does it better because he made it in his own image. Jesus is the king that we need. And you might be here this morning and, and you might be saying to yourself that Jesus is not the king that I want. I want you to take a hard look at Jesus and ask the question, can you really find anyone better? He is the one that you need. We're going to close the sermon out this morning with communion. Hopefully on the way in, you grab the elements. If not, there's a bucket in the aisle there. On the night that Jesus met with his disciples, the night before he was killed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he passed it around and he said, this is my body. And it's given for you. The Son of God left his throne and he took on flesh. And he came to us as a little tiny baby born into this world to live a life that we couldn't live. Perfect and righteous. And he gives that life on the cross in exchange for ours. This is his body. Given for you. Take and eat. Next, he took the cup and he said, this cup symbolizes my blood, the new covenant. The prophets spoke of a new covenant where in which the spirit of God would come and change our hearts and would take away our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, a heart to accept and embrace him as king and that he would write his laws on our hearts so that we would live and thrive according to his ways. And Jesus comes and he pours out his blood 
so that that covenant could be realized. That in the cross, what happened with Adam and Eve is repaired and redeemed. And sin and death is removed. And the Holy Spirit enters in the heart of the believer and begins to change us from the inside out so that we can let him sit on the throne of our lives. Take and drink all of it. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, the way that you communicate to us. That you have given us uh, a story. It took a lot of years to come together and compile together and this story is the story of you. It's the story of who you are. It's the story of what you've done. It's the story of your son. Thank you that it is honest. Thank you that it helps us to see what needs to be changed within us. Thank you that it critiques us and that comes in as an authority over us. And Lord Jesus, I thank you for coming. I thank you for suffering and willingly laying down your life in order to make us righteous. And Holy Spirit, thank you for taking up residence in us. Forgive us for the times when we turn away from you. And I pray that you would empower us to live by you. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.